Hello, and welcome to Someday We'll All Be Dead, a podcast where we talk about all the things with a social work perspective. I'm your host, Hallie Harris, and I am a hospice social worker. Before we get started today, I want to mention and give a shout out to the great folks over at Freak Nation Podcast. They are amazing. They have great stories um, where they research crazy things that happen in different cities throughout the United States. And uh, we support them 100%. So take a listen. Did you know it's believed Giles Corey, the man who was pressed to death during the Salem Witch Trials, cursed Salem and all of its future sheriffs? Or that the highest concentration of UFO sightings have occurred in southern Colorado, which is also home to a UFO watchtower? Or that the oldest and possibly haunted gay bar in America is Cafe Lafitte in Exile in New Orleans? If this interests you and you want to hear more, then you should check out our podcast, Freak Nation, where we explore the fringe of society one city at a time. It's the queer paratravel podcast you didn't know you needed. Without Freak Nation and Christina, I probably would not have been able to get this podcast up and running because I'm technologically challenged. So thanks so much for them. And if you choose, go over and check out Freak Nation podcast anywhere that you find podcasts. So we're going to get into this difficult conversation. Dr. Jeff Beck from Children's in Seattle was gracious enough to give me some time for me to interview him. He came up and gave a presentation to our staff at our hospice and it was so wonderful. I knew right away that I wanted to interview him. He's got some great points and different perspectives to see things in different ways and I just really love uh, his philosophy. And just as a reminder, there are some terms in this episode. Uh, specifically hospice and palliative care. If you want more specifics on what those two things mean, you can check out uh, episode number two, hospice is not a four-letter word, and that has a better explanation of those two terms. We ease into the conversation, kind of starting with last week's episode, which is drunk history. So I get to introduce Dr. Beck to drunk history for the first time, which is kind of fun. Have a listen, and I hope you enjoy. How long have you been doing this podcast? I've only been doing this since October, actually. Okay. So, but I I do a once a week podcast. And oh, nice. I did uh, my second and third podcasts were basically a hospice overview and death with dignity. So I'm real fun. <laughs> yeah. But we, we talk about other fun things too. Like last week, uh, I did an episode with one of my co-hosts about drunk history and how you can really get some good education from from comedy so ah so i try to make drunk it a little history. more light is that like i don't even know what that like is that a genre of, of like sounds like a trivia oh my goodness you haven't seen drunk history no oh it's so great it's a it's a tv show on comedy central that makes sense and there's this host derek waters and okay. he um, meets up with different comedians, usually, or writers, or things like that. And they both get drunk at their house. And, yeah. and uh, then the writer will tell a story of history, like a true story. And then on top of that story is a reenactment with other celebrities. And they oh. reenact every single thing, like cuss words and burping. And it's just hilarious. But also, they really tell, like, actual good stories, like, why didn't I learn about that in history class? 
Right, but it's accurate. Yeah. So that's the episode we just did. It's like, why didn't I know all of these great things? Um, for example, Rosa Parks. Everybody knows Rosa Parks and the bus story. But yeah. people don't really know about Claudette Colvin, who was the first black lady who was like 15. And she worked with Rosa. And she was the one that actually got pushed off the bus first. And then Rosa and the team set up, um, you know, they kind of planned that bus scene so but nobody knows about claudette right and that's important i think so they tell kind of they tell famous stories too like hamilton uh Uh lin-manuel miranda did that um storytelling and it was a great episode all right i'm gonna have to check this out yes definitely cool all right i'm in a place where it should be relatively quiet and um undisturbed (laughs) okay Uh, so I am recording now. I can hear you fine. So let me know if you can't hear me at some point. Great. All right. So I'm talking here with Dr. Jeff Beck. It's so great to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for taking time out of your day. Yeah, thank you. Happy to do it. And if you could just give us a little bit of an intro of what you do and what's important to you in your work. So I am an inpatient, mostly palliative care doctor at Seattle Children's Hospital. And I also serve as a hospice medical director for a home-based pediatric palliative care and hospice team okay. in the greater, greater Seattle area, in the oh. Snohomish County. Okay. How long have you been doing that? I have, I finished training in, uh, at the end of 2013, or I guess in the middle of 2013. Um, so whatever that math is now, six, <laughs> almost six Almost six years. Yeah, I've been doing doing those jobs. Well, you came up and gave a presentation with another lady. I think she was an RN um, to our hospice yes. staff about pediatric hospice and how we work together. And the staff really thought it was so very helpful. And so I just kind of wanted to recap some of the things that you mentioned during that talk. Great. So one of the things we found really interesting was that you mentioned, uh, if you don't mind talking about it, having some chaplain training. And we wondered how that or if that affects what you do now and if it helps. Yeah, it's a funny story. Because I I did um, two units of clinical pastoral education um, when I was 21, um, kind of late college years. And I don't think most people would say that they stumble into chaplaincy, but that's kind of what I did. I was, you know, not a typical pre-med student. I was a philosophy major, but I was heading towards medicine as kind of a goal um, of a career. And I was looking for a way into the hospital because I actually hadn't done much medical, um, hadn't had much medical exposure Um and so my mom is a marriage and family counselor, and she's like, you know, you should just go ask the chaplains if you can hang out with them. And I was like, <laughs> okay. So I met with the head chaplain at Harborview Medical Center, one of the major trauma centers, um, in, well, the major trauma center in Seattle and for the really the region. And they're like, no, you can't shadow us. <laughs> you can do, you can train. You want to be a chaplain trainee? And I was like, sure. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, yeah, yeah. So I... You know, they made an exception for me because most people need, you know, I don't know, theological background, right? And I right. was a, 
um, philosophy major, which doesn't really count for that, but in, a, in its own way, I guess I met at least a bare minimum of, I could have finished all my clinical pastoral education. I wouldn't have been a certifiable chaplain because I had no one to back me as a chaplain, mm. a, as a spiritual organization. Is that That's the way I understood it, at least. I have to have chaplain friends tell me otherwise. <laughs> but um, but that was, so that was my, really my foundation of medicine was, um, learning as a chaplain, going room to room, being, I was the on-call chaplain at times for a major trauma center, like 21-year-old, beardless Jeff Beck um, (laughs) was um, responding to crises in the middle of the night, and it was the kind of, um, you know, spiritual representative for families at times, and so that was a, uh, you know, it was a lot of very intense interpersonal um, therapy, really, it yeah. was what I, I what I experienced chaplaincy training to be, um, both individual and small group, and then large group therapy and didactical training, and and you know really added to you know as a you know younger individual in college, it was nice finishing college. I did it both at the, my last year as a senior, and I did it in between before I went to medical school. Um, it really informed a lot of, of my practice, and I think. I was always drawn, you know, with my philosophy degree to kind of um, end of life questions um, and theology. Um, I had a religious upbringing, and um, so those questions were always a part of me. And uh, so it wasn't really a surprise that that's kind of the part of medicine I would eventually kind of get back into. But but it also being a chaplain served to be like the foundation of medical practice for me. So holding space for people and listening and um, really kind of discerning how to best not help people in the way that I thought best, but helping them along their own journey. This idea of not confusing your own story for the patient's story was kind of the mantra in chaplaincy training. And, and really that's the mantra of palliative care that I practice now. And so, you know, in some ways I'm, I'm, more of a chaplain now in some ways than I am a doctor in the you know typical western way because I do much more counseling and therapeutic relationship and throw in some pain and symptom management and kind of <laughs> medical perspective when it's needed but but what I do most is you know hold space for people and try to promote healing on different planes than um, than you know is typical well, I can certainly see how you would end up in a hospice position, but pediatric hospice. <laughs> Oof. Yeah. <clears throat> you know. Um, you just wanted a I'm challenge. Just, I'm, a, I'm a martyr, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a martyr complex. They, um, no, but seriously, I think for me, I, I was drawn to peds in general in um, medical training because of the resiliency of kids. Mm-hmm. And what's incredible about pediatrics that I still am amazed by is, you know, and I've worked in adult hospitals too, um, even in palliative care. I worked at the University of Washington for a few years. But you walk into a children's hospital and to see kids who are sick and yet still happy and joyful and playing, um, there's some, there's some, you know, just brilliance to that and beauty to that that is inspiring. Um, and... Um, you know, in reality, I, I work mostly with parents now. You know, it's mostly because a lot of the kids that I'm seeing are too sick to really have a therapeutic relationship. Not that that doesn't happen on occasion, but 
most of the time I'm supporting parents and family members through decision making and the crisis or challenge that they're, they're dealing with, whether that be just in terms of complexity or, or at the end of life, if that's the case. Um, and, and in palliative care, we, we especially in an inpatient setting, we do much more upstream work around supporting families and helping them through decisions or helping them discern what they feel like the appropriate um, you know, direction of care is based upon um, you know, what the um, prevailing kind of quality of life is in their child or based upon what the new baseline might be after a series of challenges or setbacks. So um, that's a long-winded way to, to say that, you know, um, now, you know, it's, it's more kind of, uh, it's a place that I've kind of grown up in medicine, you know, doing general pediatrics training first and then getting into palliative care. So I, I really enjoyed working with adult patients, um, on the adult side, but, but I have much more of a, um, expertise in, in pediatric conditions in general. And, and it's, it's a needed area of, uh, you know, there's not a lot of us in this country doing that work. Um, it's a growing number um, year by year as the specialty has grown um, over the last few decades now. Um, so it's more, you know, ultimately I'm pulled to work with, you know, kids and families. And, and in particular, I, I feel really at home um, being around death and dying and um, discerning how to hold that space for people. Yeah, I, I have this, a similar reaction when people ask me how I can do any kind of hospice care. Uh, and I feel yeah. the same. I, I'm privileged and honored to be able to hold that space. I'm very comfortable in that space. And so, you know, there's other people with other talents and good on them. And they probably couldn't do what we do. And we do what we do because we can. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, you mentioned the, and you kind of briefly mentioned it just now, but in the talk, you mentioned the guru-disciple relationship. Hmm. And I wondered if you could speak to that a little bit, the letting the kids yeah. kind of guide the way. Yeah, you know, this is something that has kind of um, struck me over the past couple of years. I was uh, I'm carrying, I've been actually been caring for um, intermittently because this um, um, teenage medically complex young man um, lives mostly outside the hospital, only comes in periodically but he was actually at one point on home at home on hospice care preparing for the end of life and and then they kind of had a quality of life summer and he kind of you know perked up and then eventually kind of discharged off hospice back onto pallet home-based palliative care and and you know the mom just comes in and, and she and I were talking and, and it was just a clinic visit where she came without her son and and she was just struggling with like, is she making the right decisions? And, and how did you know, she just so much of her life is connected to her son. And, and so often when, when parents um, have that type of connection to their child based upon medical complexity, they're really, it struck me as this element of just complete devotion, you know, like devotional love is what they completely surrender their entire life, their entire way of being for the service of another mm -hmm. and and in this visit I actually shared with her you know like what strikes me is that it really is the type of you know unconditional love that you're giving your child is really kind of reminds me of the guru disciple relationship um and she you know and that was the right 
you know, one of those things that felt right to say in that moment. And for that mom, she, it was a touching and, and heartwarming thing to hear and validating too. Um, so that, that's kind of where it came from, but it, for me, it's a, it's just something I've been struck by and have seen in the remarkable work that parents do, um, completely just devoting their lives to the service of, of oftentimes just one of their ch- children and then have a whole family maybe are continuing or trying to continue around that too. Um, so it, 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 I'm just re- amazed at these, these parents and what they do being a parent myself. Um, and they, they do it because they need to do it and they're called to do it. And, and, um, they feel the life of their child and the importance in supporting that individual. And that's where, you know, I really feel like the, the children lead the way, you know, they're communicating with their parents, even when they can't communicate. Typically they might be, you know, a teenager who is developmentally like a one year old or younger, somewhere in that age range. And, um, maybe they smile, maybe they have some laughing and, um, uh, you know, but, but otherwise are completely dependent for their care and um and those children communicate you know in and almost in the way that you know well in almost exactly the same way that we would expect a infant or you know six month old to communicate us with us without words as a parent Mm -hmm. um you learn their cues and begin to understand them and then as they develop language we substitute that understanding for verbal language but these parents continue to maintain that um, intuitive relationship and it grows stronger. And so I really counsel parents that, you know, your child is speaking to you, trust your decisions. You know, they're here for your parenting mm-hmm. and, um, and they came to you. And so trust your decision-making as a parent, that, that they are informing you, that they are, are going to help lead the way. And I, I oftentimes will say that to parents, you know, in ICUs who are struggling with decisions or on cancer floors or, with you know families and children with medical complexity because it strikes me as true and i've experienced that as true and i can i can speak to that that that's what i've seen and and felt um so that's kind of what i what i where that comes that idea of the guru disciple relationship and um comes from where the parent is the is the disciple of this guru that they're just completely giving their life to and the child is leading the way and and the child will um in most cases leave this world before their parent um and then the parent needs to reacclimate to what is life without their their guru Mm -hmm. and how do they find that you know anyway the, the, the analogy can continue on depending on how spiritual our conversation wants to get but um but that is the general framework for for this idea that has kind of been um, resonating with me recently. Yeah, and you mentioned the children leading the way, and it struck me during the presentation that you were discussing quality of life and how we frame that for ourselves, and that oftentimes the children, these these patients, these medically complex, you know, little kids are having reports of better quality of life than even the doctors themselves would report their own quality of life. Yeah, you're, you're, you're referencing that. And I'm, um, I should really know this study by name <laughs> since I, I quote it, but, um, you know, uh, it's, it's an often quoted study where, um, children with, um, severe cerebral palsy who still had, you know, um, the intellectual capacity to be able to kind of re- 
report their quality of life on a 10-point Likert scale. And so researchers asked the doctors to rate the child's quality of life, um, the doctors to rate their own quality of life um, as well. And, and what was interesting, and then the children uh, the, um, or teens uh, to rate their, their they wrote, rated their own quality of life. And so, um, like you said, the children, um, you know, averaged rating their quality of life um, higher, much higher, three points higher than the doctors rated the children's quality of life. And actually the children rated their own quality of life better than the doctors rated their own quality of life. Um, and so, you know, the doctors maybe reported their quality of life as better than the child's, but it ended up being lower than the child child rated their own quality of life. So, right, we, we just don't know. We assume, you know, our well-bias or quote-unquote wellness, what we think is normal, we, we assume that that is what is meaningful, right? And, of course, meaning is really in the eye of the beholder or the, the, the family unit. And and that's where care comes in to understand, well, where, where does your family – land on the spectrum. I may, I may not, not agree with you on what is quality of life, um, but but what's your sense? How can I better understand how to advocate for you and help you through this situation and, and navigate complex medical decisions? Um, or do you need to know about options if, you're, if a family's struggling with, man, those bad days are way outnumbering the good days for their child and they want to know, oh, oh, there are different options? I didn't realize that. So a lot of times I will say that, you know, we, we in palliative care, for me, anticipatory guidance looks like painting a picture of the landscape of possibilities for somebody, you know, so that they can navigate that landscape as they work through it. Not that they're at that place to make a decision in that moment, but, but what do other families in their situation choose? And, and the fact that there's not a wrong choice. Mm-hmm. Um, as long, you know, the choices that are out there being offered, there's really not a wrong choice if they are, um, in that place of connection with their child, which, you know, the vast majority of cases they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's important for all disciplines of healthcare really to remember that quality of life is in the eye of the beholder and it's not what our own values or what we think their quality of life should be. You're right. Yeah. You know, we take our, our cultural um, relative truth and, and put an absolute stamp on it. And uh, we forget that we have a lot of relative relativity within us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, just <clears throat> briefly touching back on, you were talking about things being unpredictable. And during the talk, you mentioned about uh, prognosis for children being really unpredictable. And so I imagine yeah. that's got to be difficult to navigate in as opposed to an adult where there's a, you know, it's still a little bit unpredictable. We never really know, but there's a fairly certain trajectory of disease. And in children, because they're so resilient, that's not the case. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's quite amazing. And really, well, you know, when, when a part of a child or younger individual's um, body is leading to the, or near, you know, leading them to be near to the end of their life, other parts of their system are still full on, let me keep going, mm-hmm. right? So the physiologic resiliency, I mean, it's kind of like if somebody's a healthcare provider, you know, in, in you know, pediatric sepsis, there's, you know, blood pressure compensation. Um, so that like heart rate might be up and blood pressure is normal, but that's not an okay, that might not be an okay sign in a child because they compensate so readily and easily. They, they could be really close to just totally bottoming out and falling out and being in trouble. So 
um, in the same way, you know, as that is an example, it's like kids' bodies can kind of do remarkable things. Like in, in the oncology world, for example, when adults have a certain functional status, they're not offered chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. There really is not a functional status that doesn't get offered chemotherapy in pediatrics because kids can tolerate it. Which, you know, if you're coming from the adult world, that's kind of weird. And you might be like, whoa, is that right? Is that the right thing to do? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and, and then that's a tricky question to answer, depending on how you, what, whose framework you want to answer it from. Um, but when there's a chance that this can help and, and when the parents feel that the help might either be longevity or but good quality time and that is meaningful or getting home or whatever it might, whatever their particular, you know, perspective or goal might be in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. And I think concurrent care is an important discussion in pediatric hospice, particularly. Um, We were discussing that pediatric treatment providers such as yourself aren't necessarily okay with death and dying just in general. And that's really goes with all providers across the board who they're treating uh, and not all hospices take on pediatric patients, and, and that is particularly because of the concurrent care situation. And it does complicate the way that you run your hospice or navigate your clients. And it was really helpful to hear that there are complications and difficulties for people that do this every day, um, not just for our hospice, because I, as I understand, not all hospices will take on pediatric patients. And so it was very helpful for us to hear that children's, you know, doesn't always have the easiest time with their medically complex patients as well. Yeah. You know, for me, it's one of the beauties of this work is that there is just never, there's never a similar situation because even though it might be diagnostically the same, right, that expression of that diagnosis is so unique and then the family is unique and then how to support that family is, is unique, right? Um, Mm -hmm. There's common themes, but it's, but it's a very creative, iterative process, um, which for me is exciting. And and it's more about, you know, being a physician, um, not a physician fixer, but more of a physician as a healer. Um, what does healing look like for this family, given what can be, um, can, can occur, what's possible? Um, but yeah, our, that said, our, yeah, our team struggles all the time. Um, and, and it's hard. It's hard to figure out the way through our expanding technological advancements and what the downstream impacts of of what that means for what what type of life we're able to support. And you know, when you think about um, somebody who's been in an infantile state of development, and that for for you know, decade or more, um, that that parent. That, that's who they know their child to be. We see somebody who's been living in a state of medical complexity for, you know, many years, and the parent still is connected to that same, you know, life as they've known it. So right. it, it's just such a different perspective, and um, and it makes for complicated decision-making, given, like I said, all the advancements and ways that we can support the body, and given what we talked about with physiologic resilience and, and um pediatric patients so it, it makes prognostication challenging um, it makes from the hospice perspective we in pediatrics often say would you be surprised if a patient would die in the next six months not do they have a six-month prognosis mm-hmm. uh, because that's a really hard thing to pin down 
Um, so the would you be surprised question is kind of nice because it actually, oh, yeah, I would be. Okay, maybe they're not a great candidate for hospice. Or no, I wouldn't be surprised. Maybe we should think about hospice and hospice with concurrent care, concurrently providing life supporting care alongside hospice if they're not ready for typical hospice goals. Um, if they're still wanting to come into the hospital or get life-sustaining treatment or whatever else would preclude them from typical hospice care due to cost or um, other challenges. Right. And just to clarify, for a pediatric hospice, what is the top age for pediatric care? Is that in the 20s? It's 21. Okay. I thought it was. It was more than 18, I was pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so pediatric palliative care in our state, Washington State, um, uh, the 21st birthday, they go off of getting a palliative care benefit. So, um, you know, that in our state, Medicaid gets gives, um, for Medicaid patients, you get six home palliative care visits a month if you're eligible for pediatric palliative care, which is pretty vaguely or generally defined. Um, um, many of the patients um, at Children's Hospital would qualify, but not all receive it because it, it's not necessarily a. Um, uh, it, well, it's not an. It's an exhaust. It's not an exhaustible. It's an exhaustible resource, mm-hmm. and so it's it, we as the as the awareness of palliative care has grown, we've been more precise in its application um, to support the families that need that type of care and support the most. Um, just given limited resources. Sure, sure. I want to uh, <clears throat> back up on when you're talking about parents knowing uh, their child in a certain state for a long period of time. And another one of the points that was made that really struck me was that denial can be reframed as extreme hope. I really love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. I mean, we, we um, yeah, I think that was one of Anne my nurse care coordinator uh, on our palliative care team who joined me for that talk. That's kind of one of the ways that she's framed things. And it's true. I think that um, oftentimes you sit down with a family in my experience in palliative care and, and you ask them some open-ended questions about their understanding, what the medical team is telling them. And you hear a really clear um, perspective on, on everything. Um, it's very rare that that families don't actually understand what the medical teams have said. It's more common that they're choosing not to believe the pessimism or the reality, whatever perspective they take, of what's happening. Because maybe they've seen their child get through it so many times. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're not getting that sense from their child that it's time to um, shift um, in interventions. Um, For medically complex children, that shift from what I see, usually happens over months to years. They might begin to limit things, um, and 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 you know, because like I said, when you've cared for somebody for a decade and done all these interventions and needed to go in and out of the hospital for urinary tract infections or respiratory infections and needing some extra respiratory support, whether that be intubation or whether that be a you know like a CPAP or BiPAP mask, these families are used to the things that that many people are not used to. Um, and so for them to shift away from that takes a lot of energy and takes a lot of assurance that that's really what's right for their child. And, and with slow declines, they adapt to those declines um, and build a lot of resiliency in that. So, you know, what, 
you know, what providers maybe see as suffering, the families see as temporary, and they get them home and see those happy times, be it bath time or, you know, walks or whatever brings their child joy. That that is just, that is life giving and supportive to them, um, and important to keep keep providing that. Um, but we we provide that open door to say like give them permission to think about other things think about different choices when they're ready to to let them know what other what other families might choose or have chosen just so they can you know um be informed and empowered right and then when you have those quote-unquote morally distressing patients you were mentioning about being able to normalize that in particular for the staff i think yeah because we're seeing things that, like you said, it's it's not something we're used to seeing them go through it. Maybe the first time we're seeing it, and so we have a a particular trajectory in our minds, and again, quality of life and all that kind of things built up in there, and then to be able to normalize what they're going through and be able to support them in that walk is important. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think that what can be so challenging is that there's. Some of these pediatric palliative care cases might, in the home setting, if they're really upstream, feel like case management, comprehensive Mm -hmm. case management. Um, And yet they might be having a, um, whether it be called a terminal or a um, uh, declining condition alongside um, that case management you know very at some point it's like oh yeah they're clearly a, a appropriate palliative case um that that makes it quite different than the typical hospice management right because it's it really is holding both worlds at the same time it's holding the typical let's get to the hospital see if they can get through this respiratory infection and back to their baseline um and if not is that acceptable or or do we think about limiting interventions more and um, and that's you know, for a hospice team that's not equipped with that type of broader view in terms of life-sustaining therapy alongside of, you know, preparing for potential end of life, um, those are just different skill sets, you know? So it's, yeah. it's not that it's not, they're not able to be done at the same time, but it, but it, it's just a different, I think, viewpoint. So it just takes some training to be like, okay, oh, wow, this is bigger, this is different, and Oh, can we support this? Can we do this in a way that's honoring to the family um, and do the pieces that we know and support them in the ways that they need to? Right. Um, and in t- I think in certain circumstances, the answer would be no, we can't. But other times, it's gonna it would work out. Um, and like you mentioned, that staff are gonna need support around. Like, wait a minute, I'm not used to seeing this. Is this normal? <laughs> Is this okay? Like, I'm having distress over this because I think. The development of each of us, right, as providers of care in this setting is, is we really have to, um, on some level, accept what's happening um, and um, not be attached to what's happening. Right. Not I mean, atta- it, certainly, not attached, yeah. it certainly brings up feelings for the individual. Like you said, you have children. And so a lot of times providers, um, especially providers like in our hospice where pediatric is not our primary caseload and it's it needs a lot more support for staff for people having their own um triggers being pulled yeah and i think that for me you know triggers are always a wonderful right it's a it's a it's a light shining on our edge state on (laughs) uh on the areas where we are 
um, maybe the areas of ourselves that are uninvestigated or beliefs that we hold that we are not, um, that we have not kind of come to terms with. Um, and I think especially in PEDS, the cultural narrative that a child shouldn't die before their parent, mm. right? That, that is a, that is a, um, belief of privilege in a, in a, <laughs> yes. in a country, in a country where, uh, there is, um, mostly sufficient care to make that true most of the time. That's a great but, way to put that because it's hard to remember that that's not the case in every country in the world. Yeah. Right. And, 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 um, and that's, and it's just not right. It's not actually true. It's like, well, no, there's, you know, most of, most of pediatric death happens under one year. Um, and, and so there's lots of, of grieving families out there. Um, but, but it's, it's hard when it's, it can be so isolating when you don't, you know, know of other people who've gone through that too. And I think then for the culture or the family group for like them to know how to support someone through that, when it's such a foreign idea in our culture is also problematic and it can further isolate the parents or family because they don't feel like people can understand or, or can't hold space for that. Right. So for us to develop the skills to be able to do that, you know, it, it really is providing support that other people don't know how to do. That that makes pediatric death different. Right. Um, and some people would say, you know, pedi- every pediatric death is complex grief in our culture. Yes. For sure. Yes. Um, be- because of the fact that it's not something that um, many people know how to navigate. Yeah, there's no societal norms around those kind of deaths. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think. Not, yeah, not the least to say, or societal norms in general around grieving. But, <laughs> right. That's, that's a whole another other thing. <laughs> exactly. Um, so one of the other things too is support for staff around code status. So for those who aren't familiar with the term code status, we're talking about whether or not to provide life-sustaining or life-supporting treatment like CPR and tube feeding and that kind of thing. And when you're talking about a code status for an adult, that's a very different scenario. It kind of all ties back into that resiliency and being able to be comfortable with a ped patient having a full code status. Yeah. I think that's really been a struggle for our changing dynamic of who we're caring for is it's okay to have a full code status and still be on hospice. Right. Yeah. Right. That's a trip for, for groups that are used to, you know, once again, in the adult world, in the adult setting, especially, you know, older adults, most of, you know, um, most of who make up the census for hospices, it just wouldn't make sense to a lot of times to, to do intubation for that individual because they're not going to survive that situation that led to intubation. But if you've got somebody who's in and out of the hospital with respiratory failure every couple months, for them to be intubated for, you know, an infection that pushes them over the edge may take them a couple of weeks to get back, but they could get back to a decent baseline and still be declining, whether it be a neurocognitive disorder or a cancer or whatever it might be. So, um, that's what's so, that's what's so tricky, that resiliency piece. So yeah, there, there are times that there will be hospice appropriate patients who are full code because the family is not yet ready. And you're like, Oh, but do they really need, would chest compressions really help? But in the moment of a code situation, you know, maybe it's an electrolyte imbalance. Maybe it's something that's, it's harder to say with certainty that it's, that it's something that is active dying that can't be reversed. Right. Um, 
And most most families who are in a hospice kind of paradigm, even if they're doing concurrent care for some amount of time, eventually get to the place where they are limiting whether it just be resuscitation or eventually intubation. Um, and at times, um, tube feeding, but you know, this is different for pediatric patients too, since some of those patients in the medically complex world, they may have always been tube fed. Right. So, so in that case, you're not talking about something that is added in the, you know, the, the sixth or seventh decade of life or eight, you know, whatever, however old, they, you know, it, individual with dementia who's unable to eat, you know, more of a typical adult case where feeding tubes get mentioned or, but in peds, you might have a, a child who's never able to feed by mouth and is always fed by their gastrostomy tube in their stomach or a, a more fancy form of that. And, and then, so to not do that at some point actually is, is pretty rare. It happens um, in cases where, um, you know, there's just perceived suffering and prolongation of, of, of simply life without actual quality, like we've kind of talked about a little bit, but um, it's, it's a rarer situation in peds mm-hmm. to have that, the tube feeding in particular um, withheld. And, and the same is true in the medically complex world with um, non-invasive respiratory support like CPAP or BiPAP. Some of those kids are receiving CPAP or BiPAP at home. And so it's pretty common for them then to get that, you know, to not, to not ever remove that until maybe they're in the final days of life where it just doesn't feel like they're prolonging wakefulness and, and quality time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, um, <clears throat> you also mentioned a Buddhist monk talk about giving back compassion versus taking it in. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, Matthew Ricard um, is, you know, sometimes termed the, the happy monk. Um, and uh, he, many people are talking about this idea now, um, you know, the idea of, you know, what is, how do we distinguish compassion from empathy? And, and some of it, you know, is accepting the definitions that neuroscience is, is you know, putting out there for these things because they really are different parts of the brain. But Mathieu Ricard was being um, studied in an MRI scanner, um, and he is a physician and also a um, Buddhist monk. And he was being studied, and he was asked to, um, in an fMRI scanner, to look at the parts of his brain that were active. Um, think of a really challenging circumstance, um, and he recalls kind of considering some children that he had seen on the streets who were homeless and he was kind of just keeping them in his mind and while he was doing this um uh the run the people running the study said wait what are you doing you know your brain looks completely different than anybody else who's done this so he said well i i brought those people to mind and then i was sending them you know um loving thoughts and loving kindness and they were like oh well, we don't want you to do that. We want you to continue to feel the, the, you know, the sorrow and sadness of that situation. So he's like, okay. So he went back into the MRI scanner and he did that for 30 minutes or so. And, um, and he came out and he said, I feel so depleted. Mm. Um, that was so, why would I do that? <laughs> why would I, why would I continue to dwell on the suffering and not send them positive, you know, compassion and love back um but it was what was beautiful was just his acknowledgement of like oh yeah if we are in this state of witnessing we really can begin to pay attention to this idea of are we energetically receiving information or are we sending it out because it's helpful to receive it if we're going to do something with it 
But if we just get that information from somebody about, oh, how hard the situation is and just continue to feel that, our nervous system is going to be quite depleted and um, worn down. And and to me, that's what burnout is. You know, it, it's it's burning out our nervous system because it's constantly firing and we're constantly in distress in the state of moral unrest um, from the suffering that we palpably feel from somebody else without doing something about it, without enacting compassion, you know, towards another person, whether that be with our energy, with our, um, with loving kindness or with an action that is, um, other centered, not, not our own centered. Um, so, you know, in brief, that's kind of this, this, I think a beautiful idea for resiliency is really paying attention to, are we just being a, um, a sponge for the distress or are we noticing, Oh, what's, what I'm picking up on the situation. And then, um, and either just giving them back loving kindness um, in kind of a meta meditation type of way, or are we, um, or are, are we inspired to act in a way that um, is other other person centered, not acting out of our own distress and, un, and discomfort with the feeling of sorrow or pain or whatever we're seeing? But is there something that we can actually do to serve the other individual, which is different than you know, just simply trying to stop the um, emotion or difficult situation from happening? Well, isn't it funny that it takes that kind of a study to prove that our emotions and physical body are connected as if that's never been the case? <laughs> right. You know, we, we, we are getting there in the West, um, <laughs> slowly, slowly, slowly learning. You know, I think, um, yeah, right. We are, we are a mind-body disconnected society. And um, I hope hopefully that's changing with, with the decades. I hope so. I, th I think you're right. It's slow, but it's getting there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you mentioned, I think, a book by Joan Halifax, Being with Dying, and yeah. maybe something called Edge State or Standing at the Edge. And mm. um, I think the quote was, Finding Freedom Where Fear and Courage Meet. Ah. Yeah, Joan Halifax, she is the abbotess, the head of the Zen Center down in Santa Fe, uh, called Upaya, and they run a course called Being with Dying that's um, been going for 22 years. It's for healthcare professionals uh, to do contemplative work around their own death um, and then to do some work around communication and um, also kind of emotional states. And um, some of the stuff I've talked about today, that training was some of the foundation for me in, in learning about those things. Um, and she's written two books, well, she's written many books, but the two <laughs> books you mentioned, being with dying is is the name of the um, course as well, um, and uh, she's worked as a hospital chaplain for many decades. So it's a lot of vignettes from her experience, and um, also some meditations that she provides on um, at the end of each chapter. And then um, Edge States is a book that actually she just recently wrote about talking about how um, you know there that that there is a in these challenging situations, there is um, a really a pro-social um, way um, to be with empathy, right? Empathy can be really helpful, but we can very easily tip into empathic distress. Yes. And so, you know, empathy is an edge state because of the fact how quickly it could lead to, to um, empathic and then moral distress. Um, and so she, in, in that book, she describes several different edge states where there's both pro-social and then also some shadow more shadow sides of those emotions if they go unchecked or unregulated or um, 
unwitnessed or whatever, you know, adjective to describe them. Um, uh, but if we can be aware of them, then maybe we can maintain that edge. And I think with that edge, we can then maintain our precision and, and efficacy in terms of supporting others, uh, being clear on why we're there, what we're doing, um, and not getting tripped up by our own story or um, egoic considerations. It definitely sounds like a book I need to read. <laughs> yeah, it's it's quite an impressive um book I, I i listened to it in the last six months as an audiobook oh nice and joan joan is a, a wonderful woman um she's doing incredible work so well any, so, any chance so people, are you <laughs> any chance people any chance people have to to be able to work with her i or go spend some time with her i strongly encourage it yeah it sounds like an amazing course to take yes definitely <clears throat> So I want to try to uh, wrap things up a little bit by kind of ending on how does a family redefine life after a child's death? And so uh, we mentioned a little bit about kind of reconnecting, reconnecting to your own self and finding meaning, yeah. um, renewing relationships with other children. I think we sometimes forget that the child that's on pediatric hospice might not be the only child in the house. And yeah. the spouse, too. <laughs> yeah. Um, maybe going back to work if that's possible, if you're able, and when you're ready, of course. And then me, maybe reconnecting with a faith if, if that's been shaken or you've had difficulty connecting with that during the time of, of the medical treatment. Hmm. Yeah, you know, what comes up for me when you um, say that is uh, really, I, you know, a lot of times I just I consider the cycle of the seasons, you know, and um, if we think about fall as a time of, of loss, and grief, um, and the winter as a time of kind of, of really soaking up and being more silent and still with all the things that have been um, lost, you know, though, I think the hope would be that through that time, there would come a spring and regrow, you know, regrowth and regeneration and renewing, um, you know, into a new phase of life. And, and that doesn't mean that that child is forgotten, but they're integrated in a different way. And, um, and maintain that relationship is maintained that, um, um, it's just, it takes a different form. Their life shows up in all the little things that they were connected in previously. Um, you know, whether that, and that's a child or, or the loss of anyone really in, in our lives. Um, but I think because of so much ownership often goes into these um, that many parents don't know how they're going to go on without their child. You know, mm -hmm. they, they see their life is so enmeshed. And, you know, that's why I think it's, it, I mentioned earlier, the idea of every pediatric loss is a, is a complex grief, just from the standpoint of it, it's going to take time and work mm -hmm. um, and trust and support. Um, and it's, you know, thanks to the grief support programs like through hospices and hospitals that can support families and, and, um, and that they can kind of begin to explore what, what it is their child was preparing them for in my language. You know, what are they, um, what might they have been, what did they teach them and what might you be able to do in honor of that life and service that you provided? Um, that ties every, nicely back into the guru dis, uh, disciple right. relationship. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. Um, 
and you know obviously that's a metaphor that resonates with me um but but and it and it's a i would i share that a, when it feels appropriate for the particular family that would be a, would not be appropriate to say to everybody mm-hmm. um and that's part of that discernment of, of just being connected to a family and 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 asking what will serve them if I if I step out of the way, it's going to even it goes back to bring a full circle back to chaplaincy training. But if I get out of the way of this situation, what am I really sensing is going to help this individual, this family, um, and trusting that connection with them. In more of the ancient you know ways as a healer, you know like good healers were considered hollow boned people. They were just conduits for what was needed for an individual, um, and that is kind of my, what I what I strive for in my practice. How can I get myself out of the way um, and, and, and provide what is needed in this moment, not based upon, sometimes intellectual information is needed, but other times it's just tuning into really where, uh, where somebody's at and what, what, they, what will um, support them. Mm-hmm. And being able to hold that space while they navigate it themselves. Totally, yep. yeah. I want to remind everyone of something that you told us that I didn't know about, which is, um, and we just had this happen a few months ago, is the second Sunday of each December at 7 p.m. in every time zone that uh, we light a candle and this contributes to a 24-hour period of remembrance of all children who have passed and it's called Worldwide Candle Lighting Day. It sounds like it was created by the Compassionate Friends Org in 1997. Um, so I think that's a great way to honor that and have it be a, a yearly reminder um, that they're not forgotten. Yeah, and it's beautiful. You know, cultures, traditional cultures around the world, uh, you know, the the uh, tradition of putting up lights um, in that time of the year when it's the darkest is, is meant to signify that the light will return. Um, and that, you know, in other times people talk about that that's the, the time to remember um, those who've gone as well. So it's 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 a appropriate time of the year to be in to be mindful of, of those who've passed and what we've learned from them and to honor them and and um, and carry them with us. Yeah, absolutely. Well, do you have any final thoughts or words of wisdom for people to when they're thinking about pediatric hospice? You know, what I, what oftentimes the way I like to end a lot of talks I give um, is. Uh, something that was shared to me first through Upaya's program, being with dying, one of their, um, one of the Roshis, the Zen Roshis who would speak, um, not at the being with dying program, but at that center often was a man named Bernie Glassman. And he founded a movement called the Zen Peacemakers Movement. And they had a three tenets of that movement. And when he would approach a difficult situation, um, he would approach it with these three ideas in mind. And the first was to go into a situation not knowing the answer. Mm. Um, and that is really the antithesis of what we do in Western medicine. Um, rarely do we go in not knowing. And as a doctor, I'm trained to sometimes even pretend I know. <laughs> um, my wife had to, to, to get that habit out of me. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, but, but not knowing the answer, showing up, not that we don't have answers, but showing up not knowing it for sure, right? I don't know what's best in the situation. And then the second tenet is bearing witness to what's happening, just to be present. And the third is what he would always say is that what follows from those two tenets is, compa- is compassionate action always. 
that if we are if we show up without an agenda without knowing what's right and we just bear witness to the humans before us that we will respond compassionately um, if we are truly you know present and connected with those individuals so um, those are you know three beautiful um, tenets that I try to live my practice by um, and and I'm grateful to um, Bernie Glassman for those I- ideas. He he died this past um, December, I believe, and so mm. um, uh, you know another person to remember and be grateful for the, the wisdom that he left. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like those would be wonderful tenets just for anyone to live their life by, and in particular, yeah. um, providers of care. Yeah, definitely. Well, Dr. Beck, thank you so very much for taking time out of your very busy schedule. Uh, to talk to me about this. It's an important topic and it's a hard topic, but I think it's something that's important to get out there and not be afraid to be open to discussing things that are difficult. Yeah, thank you for doing the podcast. All right, another great, great, great talk. Uh, Thank you so much again for Dr. Beck and his generous time Um, being able to talk to us about difficult things and hopefully it made it a little bit more accessible and a little easier to hear uh, about this difficult topic because like I said before nobody really wants to talk about kids dying but I think there was some really great points in the in the talk so if you have any comments on this please feel free to email me at contact at willallbedeadpodcast.com you can find us on Facebook at slash Someday Will All Be Dead and on Twitter at Someday Dead PC. Uh, if you would be so kind as to subscribe, rate, and review, I know I uh, don't often mention that part, but it really does help other people find us. So um, here is the end of this difficult conversation. I got a couple of other great topics lined up coming up the next couple weeks. So Uh, Stay with us, and in the meantime, maybe we can find a way to appreciate uh, the people in our lives, because someday we'll all be dead.